All righty. Good evening. It's been a really exciting day for me because today I have got to do this, which I don't normally get to do, and I got to go to Rehope Southside this morning. I got to visit our friends over there, which was fun. I got to then make the mad dash between the South Side and the West End, and I made it. I got there in time. And then I get to chat to you guys tonight as well, so it's, it's been a really fun day. Um, if we haven't met, uh, my name's Laura, and I'm the lead pastor here. Brian, who's the senior pastor, he's back next week, um, so you can look forward to that. But for tonight, you've got me, so I'm here. I am from Southeast Belfast originally. I was like, are you going to cheer tonight? Yeah, cheer this morning, cheer tonight. Always cheering. I'm from Southeast Belfast originally, but I moved to Glasgow in 2010 to study at the University of Glasgow. Some of you might have a similar story where you moved to Glasgow for a specific reason and then it just got you and you never left. Um, warning, if you're a student, that might happen. Um, you might think that you're only here for a time and then you might never leave, but Glasgow is pretty great, so worse things could happen. Next year, 2020, actually marks 10 years since I first moved away from home, which feels absolutely bonkers to me. I have a password that I use for everything, which I consider to be my new password, and it has the year 2012 in it. And apparently I blinked and we're selling 2020 calendars, but what do you know? Because it's 2020 next year, it also means that it is nearly 20 years since the millennium. Um, this is Rehope West End, so some of you maybe weren't born, but if you weren't, um, that was the year 2000. That was a big deal, Sandy. It was really fun. If you'd been there, it would have been great. <laughs> you were too. Okay, just kidding. I don't know if some of you maybe have memories, some of the, the older people here maybe have some memories of how, sorry, not to insult you, I, I remember things, I'm, I'm not old. Um, we maybe remember how we celebrated the coming of the millennium, maybe you had a party, maybe you went to a fireworks display, maybe like me, you were chucking those wee gooey millennium babies up onto the roof of your school toilets. Oh, there, there I am, that was me. I like that it's captioned, in case you don't know who it is. That was me at the Millennium. I am posing beside my budgie, Joey, who we thought was a boy but was actually a girl. I think I look sad because um, I wasn't allowed to go to the fireworks display in Belfast where my friends were, and we were having a Millennium party, which is why I was dressed up in such attire, but I wasn't actually allowed to stay up until midnight, which I felt like sort of defeated the purpose. Now at New Year's, I really struggle to stay up until midnight, but that's another story. Also, Joey was a pretty rubbish pet, so I think that's why I look so glum. You can probably take that away now or else I'll be distracted. But because time didn't get put in the freezer in 2012, um, I've also been reflecting recently that it's been 10 years since I was 17. I don't know if you have a particular year in your life that if someone asked you like, what year has been most significant, whether you'd have a particular year that would come to mind. When I started working at Rehope, I was 25, and I had some people telling me, like, 25 will be the best year you will ever have. Um, Brian Ingraham personally says that when you're 30, you're at the top of the mountain, and then it's the slow, steady slide. Um, but that's his opinion. I personally choose to believe that the prime of life is always one year ahead of me, because I've got to stay optimistic about the future. But if someone asked me what year of your life has been your favorite, or what year of your life has been most significant so far, I would generally say 17. At 17, I passed my driving test. Um, at 17, I also failed my driving test spectacularly with two dangerous errors, which was a category of error that I didn't know existed until I achieved it twice. Um, apparently, if the instructor grabs the wheel, you've not been successful. <laughs> Life hack. 
But I loved being 17. At 17, I could drive eventually by June. At 17, I had some friends in school who I actually believed would be my friend the next day as well as the day that we were currently in. And I also got to play Cinderella in the community pantomime. So for 18 productions that Christmas, I got to sit in a big two-dimensional carriage made out of wood that was pulled by a real-life pony, which was kind of gross, but also kind of fun. So for these reasons, and for others, I remember being 17 as if it was much less than 10 years ago. But most significantly, at 17, when I was 17 years old, I heard the voice of God in a life-altering way and had a conversation with him that changed the trajectory of my life. And I would very much put a, put a pin in that year as being a significant moment for me. When I was 17, I had a crossroads moment in my faith. I remember being so desperate for more of God I'd grown up in a Christian home. I'd gone to church every Sunday. I'd given my life to Jesus at a young age, and I, 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 definitely, um, I definitely experienced him in my life, and I, I knew what I was experiencing, and I knew what that meant for me at that time, but spiritually, I felt parched by the time I was 17. And I felt like the God who'd, who'd once apparently walked the, the earth in skin was so impalpable to me, like so untouchable, so unknowable to me, and I felt like, honestly, if this Jesus thing is real, and if, if my friends around me, and if my family around me who, who apparently know him well, if this Jesus thing is real, then there's got to be more on offer than what I'm currently experiencing. If it was actually going to impact my life, then there had to be more on offer. And I felt a little bit like there was just part of it that I didn't have access to. Like, there was almost a room that was locked that I was on the outside of. So at 17, I stood in the midst of a big crowd at a massive Christian festival for teenagers in Northern Ireland called Summer Madness. And in the middle of a worship set, I heard the voice of God speak to me and invite me into more, into the more that I was desperate for. And in that moment, I had a conversation with Jesus where he said, Laura, this is who I am. Will you give me everything? And I said, this is who I am. This is where I'm at. And I felt like he said, this is who I am. You can trust me to be good. Is this enough for you? Will you give me everything? At 17, I had an encounter. I had a conversation with Jesus that felt like waking up to the reality of who he was for the first time. And the conversation had such an impact on me that for, for the first time um, as a teenager, I felt like I was able to step out of habits and relationships and friendships that I'd been using to sort of fill myself up and instead just like cling desperately to what in that moment I knew to be true, which was that Jesus was who he claimed to be. This church exists. We are here because we believe Jesus is who he claimed. He was who he claims to be. We believe he is God. We believe he's good. We believe he's the one promised savior of the world. And every week in pre-service prayer, which for me is, is twice a Sunday, we pray that God would awaken our hearts to him and then that God would awaken the hearts of our, our city and our generation to him and who he is. And we pray for revival. And, and recently I've been trying to, to force myself to stop in that moment and think, okay, Laura, what are you actually asking God to do here? What are you praying for? Because I know for me, the, the words reawakening and the word revival can sometimes become just like Christian buzzwords that are detached from any real meaning. But when I pray that God would awaken my heart, it means I, I just I want to wake up to who Jesus is. And I want to see our city and generation wake up to who he is because we believe that life with him is infinitely better than life without him. 
And we ask God for revival because we want to see many, many, many people come to know that life. I'd like us to spend a little bit of time this evening thinking about a particular conversation with Jesus. Because over the last few weeks, I feel like God has has brought me back to a familiar passage to anchor just a really simple truth in me about the potential incredible impact of one reawakened heart that he can use relationship with us and at the center of that conversation with us to graciously but persistently wake us up to him. And when we're woken up to him, when we really know who he is, when we're utterly convinced of it, then the natural outpouring of that is leading other people into the same knowledge. We're going to look at John chapter 4 today. Um, This text tells a story that has been a total faith anchoring story for me. That's one of those stories I read again when life is hard or the Bible feels hard or God feels far away. And I read it to remind myself of a God who walked the earth and was tired and sat down by a well and talked to a woman. So a little context before we read it. In the story as John tells it, Jesus is on the earth and his fame is growing. He's almost reluctantly outed himself at a wedding party by turning water into wine. He's cleared the temple courts and attracted a fair bit of attention. He's spoken to a religious man called Nicodemus in the middle of the night. And John the Baptist is going around telling people, I am not the Messiah, but the Messiah is coming. John chapter 4 starts in my Bible with the subheading, Jesus talks with a Samaritan woman. It's on the screen, but if you've got your Bible, we can read it together as well. It says this. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it was who asked you for a drink, you would have asked him him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you've nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming back here to draw water. He told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you've said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his word and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and truth. The woman said, I know that the Messiah called the Christ is coming. 
When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman, but no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I've ever done. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way towards him. When I first got to know this story, I loved it. And it felt like a cold drink on a hot day in a time in my life when my love for the word of God wasn't really high, but actually I found different aspects of it really confusing. And my own faith story has been hugely impacted by the fact that Jesus breaks all sorts of cultural rules here. And I place this story of Jesus speaking with this woman at a well at the very foundations of my understanding of the God that I worship. But as I've revisited this story recently, I find myself most struck by the fact that in the midst of John's accounts of of miracles and signs and wonders that we might believe that Jesus is the Son of God, we find a conversation story. We find a story about a conversation. The biggest exchange that happens in this story is not an exchange of water from a well or from one bucket to another, but it's of words. And although John himself says at the end of his account of Jesus' life, he says, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have enough room for the books that would be written. John alone of the four gospel writers gives space to this story about a conversation because the outcome of the conversation is that many believe. The outcome is first one awakened heart and then the revival of a whole town. Jesus talks with a Samaritan woman. There are a few things about this conversation that I'd love us to think about today. The first thing is that Jesus instigates the conversation. Jesus starts the conversation. When I was 14 years old, I made the once-in-a-lifetime fatal error of being emotionally vulnerable with a boy. I um, texted a boy that I fancied at the time and told him that I liked him. I texted him late at night because I thought that made me look cool, but in reality, that meant that I spent the entire night awake watching my BT Cellnet brick of a phone, willing him to respond. He did respond about 14 hours later, and it was not good news for young Laura. I think for a long time, I felt like speaking to God, like talking to God is a bit like texting this boy. Like I was expected to bear my heart and soul and then wait in silence, wondering if he would reply, not knowing if he'd reply, frustrated at the lack of reply, eventually losing hope that he would ever reply, and then when he did, being disappointed in what he had to say. And growing up, I was all too familiar with sending messages to God, asking him for help, asking him to change my circumstances and intervene, believing somewhere deep down that he was real enough to receive my words and and wondering just maybe if he was good enough to act on them, just maybe. But the idea of talking to God, the idea of God and I exchanging thoughts and ideas, hearing from him, me talking to him, the idea that he might have anything to really say to me was nearly a completely alien concept until I did the prayer internship here a few years ago. If anything, when I was growing up, conversations with God felt like an unreachable ideal for the super holy or for YWAMers. But in this story about a conversation, Jesus, the image of the invisible God according to Colossians, he starts the conversation. He makes the first move, and I love that. 
A living, breathing, heart-beating incarnation of the God we worship sits down by a well. And when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? I think he starts a conversation with her because he wants to speak to her. And I think we could be fooled into thinking that this story is about an accidental encounter. Okay, so the Pharisees are about their business and Jesus has to go back to Galilee and then he, you know, he just has to go through Samaria and then he sits down by a well and oh, a random woman comes along, but John's account of Jesus' life is incredibly well thought out. And I don't think he's about telling us about random occurrences or coincidences. I think also we can miss something here if we think that this part of John's gospel is just some sort of like mega staged spiritual conversation that Jesus is like, oh, I need to, it's about time that I actually reveal my identity to someone, so um, I'm going to wink at the camera when I ask her for a drink. I think, I don't want to forget his humanness here, because fully God and fully man, I find it incredible that he sat on dusty ground and he was thirsty and he asked for a drink. This isn't a story that ends with him getting a drink, although he might have, he might have taken a drink. But John isn't ultimately telling us another story of Jesus eating and drinking. He's telling us a story about a conversation. Jesus wants to speak to her. I love how John has pieced together his gospel account and the order that he tells things because in chapter three, in parallel to this story, we have a story of a religious man called Nicodemus who comes to Jesus in the darkness of night to question him about things that he thinks he already understands. He says, um, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you're doing if God weren't with him. And yet when Jesus talks to Nicodemus about being born again, he doesn't really get it. And that story comes just before the story of this unnamed Samaritan woman who, because of layers of cultural expectations, wouldn't have dared to strike up a conversation with Jesus herself, but she enters into theological conversation with Jesus where he reveals his true identity to her and she gets it. And we know that she gets it because she sets down the water jar and she goes to the town and she says, could this be the Messiah? When it comes to knowing Jesus, when it comes to us waking up to who Jesus is, I think sometimes we can settle for a state of being awake that's like that sort of being awake when you're, when you're in the car and your friends all think you're asleep because your eyes are closed, but you can hear everything that's going on because you're not fully asleep and you're not fully awake, you're something in the middle. I think we can settle for this state of being sort of half asleep and half awake to who Jesus is. And if we settle for that, then we'll, then we'll sort of settle for, for trying to be in the same place as him, maybe overhearing what he has to say to someone else, maybe getting close enough to him that he might just hear what we have to say to him. I think if we settle for being half asleep and half awake to who Jesus is, then his voice feels like something rare and elusive that we need to catch. It's always a little bit of a reach for us. But Jesus starts a conversation with this woman because he wants to be fully known by her, because he's not just a teacher or a rabbi, because he's the person of God, to be known, to be trusted. And he knows that if she is fully awake to who he is, then out of that full awakeness comes full devotion, full wholehearted devotion. Jesus asks a question that seems, in a way, entirely unsurprising, but is also completely radical. He asks for a drink, and we know, like, Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Like, the story even tells us that. It lays it out. 
He's a man, she's a woman. The very bucket she was carrying would have been considered unclean for him. He asks her a radical question because he's not just asking her for something. He is trying to start a bigger conversation with her. Second thing about this story is that Jesus' conversations interrupt our routines. When I was in my first year of university at Glasgow Uni, I lived in student accommodation called Blackfriars. Um, I got put there because I did not get any of my first 10 choices, <laughs> believe it or not. <laughs> that was possible. So I got put in Blackfriars, and my first response was like, uh, where is Blackfriars? I didn't choose this. And um, there were lots of things that were not ideal about this experience. Um, we had mold infestation. We had flies infestation. We um, Potentially what I liked the least, though, was the frequency with which the fire alarm would go off in the middle of the night because some clampet in the sixth floor had burnt their toast. So the fire alarm would go off, and the noise was so shocking and so abrupt and so loud that like, it used to make me feel physically sick. But I found that actually this happened quite a lot. And because it happened quite a lot, I actually got used to it, and I got tuned into it to the point that I was waking up about five seconds before it went off to like a dull hum that would come before the siren. I think sometimes I want God to interrupt me with a siren. It's a sort of interruption I expect from him, when in reality it can be much more like a dull hum, like a quiet hum that I can tune into, that I can wake up to, or I could ignore because of the nature of who God is and the freedom he gives us, he isn't maybe often going to interrupt us with something like a rake to the face, but maybe more of like a simple question, a quiet word, a moment where you have a chance to respond or to walk away. Jesus interrupts this woman as she goes to draw water with a question about water. He asks her for a drink they continue to talk about water, but there's something much more important happening in their discussion. Because at the end of it, she is inspired to leave her water jar empty, and she becomes the first evangelist recorded in the Gospels. It's an interruption with impact. I think it's ironic. I find it ironic that we live in, apparently, where we live in the age of distraction. Like, I struggle to physically keep my phone out of my own hands at times, and yet I persist in trying to confine the voice of God to my morning quiet times. My morning quiet times are great, I'm gonna keep doing them, but how willing am I to be interrupted beyond them on the daily? Am I willing to be interrupted? Am I tuned in to the hum of God's voice? I find it interesting that in this moment, Jesus asks this woman for something that she was going to get for herself. She's going to draw water and he says, will you give me a drink? And it makes me wonder, what, what are my daily wells? What are my routines? Or what are the things that I'm in the business of doing for myself and going about for myself that Jesus might actually interrupt me and say, will you give it to me? At 17, I believed God was distant and out of reach for me until Jesus had a conversation with me, spoke to me, and woke me up to the reality of himself. And Jesus talks to this woman and doesn't just interrupt the rhythm of her life, but interrupts the rhythm of everything she believes to be true. He gets in the middle of what she believes to be true and real about herself and by talking with her, reveals life-changing new things and she walks away different. Are we gonna wake up with the quiet hum of God's voice or are we waiting on a siren? Number three, 
Jesus' conversations get to the heart of the issue. The woman in the story is initially surprised that Jesus would even speak to her, but when he mentions living water, she's intrigued. She says, sir, you've nothing to draw with and this well is deep. Are you greater than our father Jacob? Where can you get this living water? Are you greater? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So she says to him, unsurprisingly, sir, give me this water so that I don't need to keep coming back here. But the story doesn't end with Jesus giving the woman magic water so that she doesn't have to go to the well again because Jesus' conversations aren't ultimately about quick problem solving or giving us stuff. But this conversation shows us something of God's heart to, to have conversations with us that will wake us up fully to who he is unless you're, you're not particularly good at it. Conversations tend to work two ways. And yet so often I am guilty of making, speaking to God my ultimate goal. And in that I can treat him like a sort of divine agony and like something out of Ms. Magazine where I'll just you know, list off my issues and sort of wait a, a quick response and a quick fix. But similarly, sometimes I can make hearing from God my ultimate goal and he becomes this sort of a divine magic eight ball that I go to and give a quick shake and sort of say, can you just give me an answer to that quickly? But if I want true relationship with him, then that requires conversation with him. In this story, Jesus isn't ultimately concerned with her convenience. He doesn't want to just save her time coming to a well for water, but he wants relationship. He wants to be known by her as he knows her. So he pushes her buttons to get to the heart of the issue. He says, go call your husband and come back. I've read commentaries and I've heard sermons that really hone in on this moment and sort of, um, yeah, focus on, on this part of her story as, as being the reason this is here. It's, it's the story is here to show us that, that Jesus will talk with a sinful woman and, and not just talk with a woman or, or a sinful person, but a sinful woman who has had five husbands and the man she's now with is not her husband. Now, we know that Jesus loves sinful people and talks with sinful people, thank goodness, but that's not what I'm left with when I look at this. At the heart of it, I, I see a woman who has longed for something to satisfy her time and time and time and time and time again, only to be left without it. And I see her story to be one that's much more defined by abandonment and disappointment than it is by her own sin. But regardless, the, the picture that Jesus paints here is clear. He invites her into conversation so that he can probe deeply into her brokenness and her misdirected desire because he doesn't want to just give her a temporary fix, but actually he wants to reveal himself as the inexhaustible source for her. And in order for us to wake up to the reality that Jesus is this inexhaustible source for us too, I think he has to first make us aware of our empty water jars, of the leaky buckets that we're carrying, of the five husbands that won't satisfy. Jesus knows she has no husband, but by telling her to call her husband, he draws out of her her own story because it's a conversation that they're having. She wanted water that just wouldn't run out, but he wanted more for her. And by talking with her, he draws out her own hope that she has for a Messiah coming. And then he says, I am what you hope for. A conversation here is not merely Jesus' method of saying something to her. It's not just his method of revealing his messianic identity, but it's also part of what he's revealing. He's revealing himself to be the God who 
yes, saviour of the world, the God who's come close, God with us, the God who loves her, the God who's going to be gracious to her. He says, well, she says, we're waiting on the Messiah, and he says, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. In the Passion Translation, he says, I am the one that you are looking for. Final thing, Jesus' conversations redirect our lives. I love how Jesus' conversation with her um, finishes with this epic revelation of who he is. The first time it's recorded in the Gospels, him revealing his identity as the Messiah, and and one of the only times that he says really clearly who he is, and, and then afterwards the disciples sort of stumble in awkwardly, having got their lunch. But in that moment, she, according to the story here, she leaves her water jar And she goes to the town and she says to the people, come and see a man who told me everything I've ever done. Could this man be the Messiah? This is a story about a woman on her way to get water at the well, about to draw water. When she enters into a conversation that changes the course of her life, she leaves her water jars behind. She leaves it empty. If we want to have a life where we make plans and carry them out, then you can almost read this as a warning story. And if we want to go to a well and, and fill our water jars and then come home and drink water, then maybe it's not wise to enter into conversations with Jesus because so often they will redirect us. This woman is, is redirected in several ways. First, she's shocked that Jesus, as, as a man and a Jew, would even speak to her, only then to enter into extended theological discussion with both a man and a Jew. She's asked for water, only then to turn around and ask for living water. She meets someone she thinks is a man to discover that he's at the very least a prophet and at the very most the savior of the world. She comes to the well alone, without even other women for company, only to then go to the crowds. She's told her own story by one man and then she tells her story to many. She comes to fill a bucket and many people find the living water. This woman comes to a well because she needs something and yet she leaves with empty hands after a conversation with Jesus. And something strikes me there of how so often if we'll enter into conversations with Jesus, our perspective on what we need most shifts. Her perspective changed. And yes, she'll have gone back to get water at some point, she'll have needed more water, but in that moment, what she thought she needed Her perspective on that changed and she leaves behind the empty jar and she goes to the town. I'm so glad that Jesus, as the promised saviour of the world, sees me and is big enough to meet my needs to be enough for me. And I'm also glad that he's the sort of God who will stoop to my level and help me set down my water jars. Dallas Willard writes in his book, Hearing God, the spirit who inhabits us is not mute, restricting himself to an occasional nudge, a hot flash, a brilliant image, or a case of goosebumps. When I read this story, I am reminded that I don't want to settle for goosebumps, but I want to know the person of Jesus, and I want to talk with him. I believe God wants to have conversations with us, and my prayer for for all of us is that our hunger for conversations with Jesus would increase that that hunger would go up because in conversations with Jesus we hear the voice of Jesus we experience the presence of Jesus and we get to know the kindness of Jesus just like this woman did and perhaps what excites me most about this story is that 
one woman here has a conversation with Jesus, is woken up to who he is, and then a whole town comes to faith in him. There are so many more than one of us here. So many more than one of us here. I believe that the transformation of our city and our generation can begin with one can begin with my awakened heart, can begin with your awakened heart to who Jesus is. I believe that the transformation of our city and generation can begin with conversations with Jesus if we're willing to meet him in that space. I have a few challenges for us before we go into time of response. My first challenge is come to pre-service prayer for the first time or commit to coming regularly we meet an hour before this service begins every Sunday uh, to pray, to talk to God, to listen to God. And I have found it in my time at Rehope to be a real training ground for me in having conversations with God and in speaking to him and hearing his voice. And I find it really helpful that it's every week. I find the routine of that really helpful. But I would encourage you tonight that if you've never been to pre-service prayer, it's, it's not just for a select group. It's, it's for everyone. Um, it's for all of us. Um, you'd be so welcome to join us. So if you've never been, consider coming along even once to see what it's like. And if you've been before, but maybe you sort of dip in and out, or, or you've just been a couple of times in the past, but you've not been for a while, then I would just invite you to, to come more regularly and see if that too can be a training ground where wherever you are with, with hearing God's voice and having conversations with him and um, discovering what he has for you in your life, just if that could be another space to meet him. My second challenge is Read Hearing God by Dallas Willard. I just really enjoyed that book. So if you'd like to read something in response to tonight, I would recommend that. It's a really easy read um, and a really helpful read. And finally, go for prayer today if you'd like to talk with God more. If you feel anything like I felt at 17 where you feel like maybe there's a room where it happens and you're locked on the outside, or even just if, if you feel like God's been quiet for a while or you feel like there's things that you need to talk to him about but you don't know how, if you'd like to talk with him more tonight, we have a prayer team who are gonna be in the balcony um, in just a moment and they would love to pray with you about that. So that's my third challenge. We're gonna go into a time of response. I'm gonna invite the worship team to come back. <laughs> 